0: You're listening to Climate Champions, a podcast from The Architects' Journal. I'm Hattie Hartman, sustainability editor at The Architects' Journal. Welcome to Climate Champions, where we offer inspiration and share essential knowledge about design in an era of climate emergency, with my co-host, George Morgan. We're speaking to change makers and innovators who are transforming architecture as we know it by designing in ways that respect
1: planetary
0: boundaries.
1: And I'm Hattie's co-host, George Morgan, director of 1.5 Architecture. The clay,
2: it's just perfect. So for me, this is the perfect material. If you had to invent a new material, that has all these qualities, this super sustainability, with this recyclability, then absorbing smells, and also acoustically good, and and also so beautiful, you know, and 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 so many ways to shape it. It would be difficult to design this product, so I would rather invest in creating new technologies to use this in techniques and better formworks and so on. Designing great buildings, beautiful architecture that prove you can build with an old material still in a very modern way. It's not the matter how old the material is, it's a matter of our creative ability to use it today.
0: Our guest today is German architect Anna Herringer, known for her pioneering work with rammed earth, starting in Bangladesh more than 15 years ago. Anna is now mainstreaming this approach with several projects underway in Europe. After Anna, we speak to Rachel Owens of the Architects Climate Action Network's Embodied Carbon Group, describing ACAN's campaign to push for the legislation of embodied carbon in the building regulations and planning policy. This is the sixth and final episode of the first series of Climate Champions. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd be grateful if you would answer a very short survey on our webpage, architectsjournal.co.uk podcasts. I'm keen to get your input on what you would like to hear about in future series. Anna, we are delighted to have you as our guest today. The reason I was keen to have you as our sixth guest concluding this first series of climate champions is your evangelical approach to earth and architecture, and the poetry of your projects. Each one is unique and spectacular in its own way. Regenerative design is the latest buzzword for sustainability, but it still seems remote from the mainstream practice of many of our listeners. You've actually been doing it and have developed a growing expertise in this niche area over the last 15 years. Upscaling Earth, the book you co-authored last year with Martin Rao and Lindsay Blair Howe, sets out a pathway for building with Earth. You've built not only in Bangladesh, but also in China, and now you have several buildings in the pipeline in Europe and in Ghana, I believe, Here in the UK, there's been an incredible surge of awareness about climate change since last year's launch of Architects Declare, which now has over 1,000 signatories. The principles that you've been espousing for years, such as using local resources, circularity of materials, and designing for disassembly, are slowly gaining currency. From your vantage point in Germany, and also teaching at some of the top universities in Switzerland and recently at Harvard, would you say that the profession and the industry have reached a tipping point?
2: Yes, I'm very optimistic. I see it, especially in the younger generations, that they're really looking for meaningful work and not just, you know, for fun anymore. And I think the search and the longing for this meaning is there. And the potentials are also there. I mean, we just realized how fast we can change our lifestyles if we have to. So I think that what's probably a good challenge now with the COVID pandemic that we, we did it, you know. And and somehow life is going on. And yes, it's challenging, but it also sets free a, a lot of creativity, I believe. So in Germany, do
0: people even talk about sustainable design or design for climate emergency
2: or is that sort of a given? Well, there's always space, you know, to do much more and yes we should do much more. I think we don't reach the full potential at all that we could do. I mean there are so many resources given by nature for free and all we need is the sensitivity to see those and to use those. And that's not happening so far because we are so highly overregulated. So for me the comparison when i build building in Ghana or in Bangladesh, it's just huge, you know, when, when I work with earth. So it's quite difficult to really build sustainable. I mean, it's just the easiest building method on, on earth, you know, to take the material that you have on the site beneath your feet, the clay, the wet clay, and shape it with your hands. And what I feel here is that the biggest problem of sustainability is the fear. When we built with natural building materials, there's always this fear of vulnerability. So to overcome this fear is the biggest challenge for sustainability and to go into a feeling of trust. The trust that all that you have is enough to create a good future and to create a good building and a durable building and a healthy building. And that is what I see as my main task in every project, to build up this trust while building up this structure. So you've worked
0: in so many different contexts. How do you adapt your approach to an entirely new and unfamiliar context and establish this trust that you're
2: talking about? Yeah, The strategy is always the same. I'm looking for local materials and I'm looking for local energy sources. And for me, the most important energy source is human labor. When we think of alternative energies, we always think of solar, of wind and so on. But in fact, it's the human energy, which is is also there, and it's a growing resource. And furthermore, if we don't use it, we also create a social problem, you know, and we need meaningful, purposeful work for everyone. So for me, the the human labor, the craftsmanship is a wonderful source of energy. And then the third is that I'm always checking the the local skills and know-how that is there, But I'm widening it up to global know-how. I think that the know-how and knowledge should not be limited to a specific place. I think, you know, that should be an open source worldwide. And then it should be adopted onto the the local materials, energies, and and what is possible to do with it. And to find very local solutions. But this approach I'm not changing when I'm building in, in Germany or in Bangladesh. I think that's a a global approach for sustainability, to take whatever you have and not depending on external factors. In your recently completed Andaloy
0: Center for People with Disabilities, there are some remarkable womb-like cave spaces. These curving shapes seem to express the joy of mud as a material, and it seems like you've gotten more and more into this material the longer you've been working with it. Has your approach evolved? I've heard you talk about clay storming. Can you describe that process for our listeners?
2: Yes, so the, it's true what you said. It's because I'm, I'm working with this material over such a long period of time since the beginning of, of my career as an architect. In the beginning, I thought, my God, this is just mud and bamboo and how can I create buildings out of these two materials? And then the more you dig into this and dive into the characteristics of the material, then the, it's a whole universe that you can discover. It urges you to create new architectural solutions and that enables a whole new language also of, of architecture. And yes, you can see it The first building, the Metis school was very straight and precise. And that was also important because it was the very first building and it was important to show to the workers it's, possible to do exact and precise earth walls and and you don't need to change the material if you want to do a precise architecture but now with this building with the Ananda Lawyer building I thought you know mod. I know that mod can do more than just straight walls and I wanted to show it and because it's a center for people with disabilities it was also a wonderful um, symbol that it's beautiful that we are not just all following the norm and the box, the pattern, the given grid, but we are kind of dancing out of this pattern and we do out of tune. And that there is a wonderful diversity and it is something to celebrate. So this building wants to radiate this joy of being different. So this ramp is dancing all around this, this structure and it's really because it's also clay and it's such a soft material and you feel very embraced by that material. You're kind of really gliding through the spaces, which is is really a wonderful experience and it's like really you have to move your body through these caves and holes and, and and follow that the curves and so on and it's really part of the therapy that because it's joyful it's fun to be there and then the clay storming is for me a process of design that comes very much out of an intuitive approach because designing is decision making all the time and I believe. The decisions I mean, so far from my life, I could tell all the decisions that I've taken out of my gut feeling were the better ones than the one that I just tried to rationally find. And that's how I'm also trying to design, you know, to reconnect with my gut feeling. And I do this while building large clay models. Because clay can so easily reshape, you just test the things out. You don't have to precisely cut things out, glue it and then cut it back. And, you know, sometimes I have the feeling, you know, it's the the impulses from the belly go directly in my hands. You know, my hands shape the design.
0: You know, it's really interesting to hear you talk because so much of what we talk about now in sustainable design is about evidence-based and measuring things and targets. And this type of work that you're doing, because you're working with a material that is freely available and has no embodied carbon, you can allow yourself that kind of freedom, it seems. So in the global south, materials are expensive and labor is cheaper. But here in the north, it's the other way around. And in the UK, there's been a real loss of any tradition of, of building with earth, and a few people are bringing it back. So how do you see this in the medium term? How do we upscale this and make it something that architects have confidence in specifying?
2: Yeah, you said it in, in the beginning. For us, materials are cheap, so those you know, materials that have a lot of embodied energy of fossil fuels and so on they don't cost but the human energy you know for me crafts is human energy and if we don't use this I mean it's a growing source more than seven billion people if we don't use this resource we also create social problems and for me this is a, is a source of energy and I think this particular source of energy should not be taxed so high as it is happening right now while the one that has carbon emissions, that should be highly taxed. And I Mm. think that would completely change our way of doing architecture.
1: You've said that building with earth has social justice benefits, because the main cost goes to labourers rather than international companies. So if we think about the just transition to a more sustainable economy, there's an argument that we need to replace jobs doing unsustainable things like driving Ubers or advertising unnecessary products with more sustainable work. Does building and maintaining earth buildings have a role to play in providing this kind of work for the Global North?
2: Yes, definitely. And the good news is that you can do the earthen walls in a very low-tech way. But, you know, in a transition phase that we have right now, of course, you can also do it in a more high-tech way and you can do gradients of it. You can do prefabrication of elements. You could have a 3D plotter, which is like my my colleague Martin Rauch is having his own rammed earth factory where you you have a machine doing the hard work and then there's still quite some craftsmanship involved with much less people involved but he did the same technology of prefabrication in the project in in Saudi Arabia of Snohetta but they just used much more people doing the ramming so you could do it one or the other way depending on the context always but for me I think we should not hand over all the work that we have to machines especially yes the hard work yes but working with earth is a special work probably everyone knows the feeling to have the hands in earth either with gardening or with pottery or something or doing ceramics it's something that is really calming down somehow it's really having another benefit and Every being, you know, every insect, every, every animal is building somehow a house, a nest or whatever. So we human beings, we also have this urge in us to build something, you know, and then what is happening that we are delegating all this building work also to machines, of course, and then we get the finished um, homes. And what we do then is to run to IKEA, you know, and and fulfill this need of nest building. And that's not the most clever way to to use this urge that we have. And I think there could be better ways. And, And the thing is... With every material, you can't have an inclusive process or a a participatory process, but with with materials such as clay, you know, that you could do even without any tools but your hands, you can include lots of people. And we had that in Bangladesh that we had kids building their own school. We had people with disabilities um, being part of it or elderly people. And of course, women and men. And so it's something that gave me a lot of joy to see. And that we also did in smaller projects in, in, in Austria and in, in Germany, when, for example, in Worms, when we ramped the Altar for 1000 year Cathedral with the community together. And then you realize the real power of architecture that is this also lying a, lot, a, a huge part in the process itself. So in architecture schools, we always learn to design the product, the house, but we should also learn how to design the process itself, because there's a lot of power for change, for social change, lies in that process itself.
1: Because the processes we've got in the, the UK at the moment are leading to something of a crisis of construction quality that was really brought to the fore by the Grenfell Tower disaster. So the lowest price wins, which means the firm that will cut the most corners gets the job. And everything's made from industrialised products, and sometimes the manufacturers lie about their properties. And even though earth is a traditional material, and it's kind of the opposite of that kind of typical approach, it can still seem quite risky for clients. The most high-profile earth building in the UK recently was um, War Thistleton's Bushy Cemetery, but that used a bit of cement to, to stabilise the earth, which I gather you, you will try to avoid. Yes, <laughs> that's not an earth building, no. <laughs> it's dirty concrete. <laughs> How could it have been done differently? Like if it had a big overhanging roof?
2: Yeah, you can do it also. I mean, my colleague Martin Rauch, when he's building in Austria, he's using speed breakers on the facade. It's like um, like a hill that needs rocks and trees in order to stop the erosion, you know, that the water is not floating down you have to stop the water running in a fast way over the facade. You know, mud can deal, or clay can deal with, with humidity. I mean, you could have a a pond and you have a thick layer of clay. You know, it won't penetrate in the ground. It would keep the water. So the same thing is when, when clay particles get wet, they expand and they close the cracks. So the, the water cannot penetrate deep into the wall. But you, what you have to avoid is that the water, the energy of the water is too much, you know, through the speed and washing over the facade and, and washing out the particles. So you need speed breakers for that. And that could be lines of mortar, of bricks. In my case, it was bamboo shingles, And then in the mix itself, you have to have like stones and, or straw or brick tips or whatever, recycled things that create a rough surface after the first centimeter, for example, is eroded. Then they work quite well. The walls—you don't have to have necessarily a large overhang. Although that, of course, is an easy solution to to protect the walls.
0: How do you deal with insulation in the north? What what are the different approaches that you've trialed so far?
2: Yeah, we're, we're just about you know dealing with this problem in in Germany for um, the campus of Saint Michael, a sustainability campus. And there we we are between the decisions of making like thick walls such as um, 75 centimeters of, of thickness or making less um, thickness and, and going with reed insulation inside and mud plasters done on top or all sorts of of, of natural fibers. You could as insulation and then get the, the mud plastering inside. Or if you want to have the rammed earth visible on both sides, you could have an a core out of insulation material, such as recycled glass, for example. You touched on prefabrication.
0: What is the role of hybrid structures? You talk about that a bit
2: in your book as a kind of transition. Yes, it, it pairs well with wood because timber is good, you know, for not, you know, you can take all the bending things, forces and so on. So. It, Like in Bangladesh I combine the mud with bamboo and and, and here I would do it with timber but also with straw of course it's a very good combination because you need a fireproof coating on the straw and earth of course is good in that regard but instead of mixing the cement partially in the walls I would prefer to have a a column out of reinforced concrete, and then the wall, you know, built but with rammed earth, because that you could separate much better than having the cement partially in that you cannot return the earth to the ground it came from, and you can't recycle it the way you can usually do.
1: So what about using lime to stabilize the earth? I understand that that's used sometimes in Pakistan to make buildings resistant to flooding. Is that something that you'd yeah, it yeah you
2: could do it with lime. But again, I'm, I'm, I mean, for me, the most fascinating thing is that you can take the building material directly from the earth, recycle it without any loss of quality. You can repair it easily. And one day, if you don't need that building anymore, you can just give it back to the ground it came from and you can plant your garden on top. And that's so fascinating. And on top of it, you have a very healthy indoor and feeling which is more and more important you know because we're we spending so much time indoors and earth can balance the indoor humidity in a perfect way which has a huge influence on our well-being you know when the air is too dry or too humid that makes us feel uncomfortable and also has the fungus problems and so on and and this is all you know with the clay it's just perfect so for me this is the perfect material And we should just change the techniques to to use this material, but not necessarily change the content. Because if you had to invent a new material that has all these qualities, you know, this super sustainability with this recyclability, then absorbing smells and also acoustically good and and also so beautiful, you know, and and, and so many ways to shape it and so many shades, it would be difficult to design this kind of, of product. So I would rather invest in creating new technologies to use this in techniques and better formworks and so on. Designing great buildings, beautiful architecture that prove you can build with an old material still in a very modern way. Because that's an image that we have in mind, you know, that when you build with earth, it's super old fashioned. But it's not the matter how old the
1: material is. It's a matter of our creative ability to use it today. You've also done some extraordinary work with textiles. In Report, you started a project bringing local textile traditions to a wider market called uh, Dipti Textiles. To explain it to our listeners, the traditional fabric is formed from layers of worn out saris and lungis, which are then hand-stitched together across their surface. And then over time, the layers wear away, leaving a ghostly impression of the different colours and patterns, a bit like a double-exposed photograph crossed with a Gerhard Richter painting. They're really extraordinary show how an idea of a different attitude to materials, which is valuing and upcycling them, could be used to enrich our lives. So could you tell us more about that project?
2: Yes, i love to, because I really love this project. It's I've travelled to Bangladesh uh, since 1997, uh, and um, the more you're there, the more you, you notice how the garment sector is the shaping the settlement patterns in this country, and how... People all over Bangladesh are leaving the the villages and migrating into this few textile hubs and there are just too many people then gathered to provide really humane conditions. And I was wondering how it is possible as an architect to do something to improve the situation there. And I've somehow felt with architecture, I'm a bit at my limits here because, you know, it's not about making a factory nicer and more sustainable, but it's the whole structure of this sector, of this garment sector, is is not sustainable with this mass production. So I thought, you know, it would be great if we could find a way how to bring the work to the people where they are in the villages. And then I saw this beautiful textile that you just described, all hanging around for drying in, in Odotopo and all around Bangladesh. And I was like, I was always fascinated with this pattern, this vibrant surfaces. And... The sad thing is when we think of made in Bangladesh, we think of a rather banal t-shirt with prints of various brands that are all done in the same factory, you know, no matter if it's a luxury brand on it or if it's a cheap one, it's the same factory. But behind that is such a rich culture of textiles in Bangladesh that we just don't notice. It's also important because normally we send our worn-out clothes back to, you know, those countries and destroy local markets again. And here we do it the other way around. You know, we send the old clothes from the Bangladeshi back to Europe and wear it there, hopefully with a lot of pride because they are beautiful, but as, as really as very unique pieces. And it's also for me a sign to say, you know, when we think of high quality products, we think we have to consume a lot of resources for that. But with this kind of pieces, you just add another layer of design, of creativity, of time and care and craftsmanship on it. To make something beautiful and that I think is an important message that we say uh, we, we value that we really see how in Bangladesh and other countries they value existing resources and add creativity and crafts and time to it and I think that is something that we have to learn you know using seeing the value in those existing resources and and drafting them in a way so so what's the takeaway for architecture from this process it's always the same approach you know it's seeing the local resources and then applying to this local resources human energy (laughs) and creating something. And then, you know, instead of getting mass products to have something that has a story, that has a meaning, I wear my, my shirts again and again. And every lecture I'm having the same things and I'm wearing them with pride. And they also change while wearing them. The next layer is coming when I'm just wearing a lot of backpacks or whatever. So Then another layer peels off and it's changing. And I think, you know, that is something we have to get more aware when we consume because we shape a lot of spaces, not through architecture, but through the way we consume goods. So in
0: China, you've made an extraordinary set of buildings forming a hostel with a round earthen core and woven bamboo cocoons you've said we don't need attacks, but we do need beautiful iconic buildings is do you mean buildings that can inspire us to use these kinds of materials in a more sustainable way or how would you describe it
2: i think beauty is a formal expression of love is a harmony that is not just on an aesthetic level, but it's a harmony that goes the process, the context, the social context, and of course the harmony within the nature and the natural resources. And I think this harmony, you can really feel very strongly and its experience also as really extraordinary beauty. This is the most powerful tool that we have as architects. Well, working with people seems to be at the heart of your message.
0: How have you lived this Unusual year of the lockdown and the pandemic,
2: when we're all cocooned into our own little little worlds. When you work with local resources, you are more resilient because you're not depending on world market prices and so on. And we we got quite well through it all, luckily. But of course, I miss being in the field. I miss be- having my hands in mud. But I had one nice Corona baby that was a birth space in, in Austria that I designed together with three other colleagues, um, with Martha Drauch, Anka Dürer and Sabrina Sommer. It's a designer from London. So we created a, a space for giving birth because it was the birthday of um, a women's museum in, in Austria, in the rural areas. And There are spaces for everything existing, but not really for giving birth. You go to the hospital. Damn, to the hospital. That's not the right place to to give birth, to start your life. Just imagine as a baby, you come out of this warmth and suddenly into this light. And then you all have R.C. with with materials that are antiseptic and super clean and super hygienic and white. That's stressful. And that's the very first moment in everyone's life, more or less. It's like a blind spot. Maybe because, you know, there are not too many women probably involved in, you know, decision-making what kind of spaces are are, are best for that purpose. And we just wanted to shed some awareness on this topic and encourage discussion on that. And I remember when I gave birth to my daughter, I, I put a poster of the caves of the midi School <laughs> in front of me so that I could zoom myself mentally in these spaces, in these cave-like spaces. And we built this first space in a similar way, built out of adobe bricks, because Earth is, is having this deep connection with human beings. So it embraces the baby when it gets out of the mom. You become part of this earth. (laughs) You're also surrounded with the earth. And then the light, of course, much more dimmed. You have a very special atmosphere inside. And then it's standing in a beautiful spot in the rural areas in Vorarlberg in, in West Austria. And that was also a project that was crowdfunded by more than 500 people. And then a lot of people also helped building that with adobe bricks. And then we put the wooden shindles directly on in the mud and... The shindles are all colored in different shades of red and also different shapes of shindles so it looks like a yeah a very funny big chicken you know you see the belly you know that in inside it's very warm like and cozy and we just hope that this would spark ideas how we can design spaces for for giving birth because this moment is shaping everyone's life a lot so, this is a project you were able to do during twenty twenty during lockdown. Yes, that we were able. And for me, it was like a super gift to have my my hands again in the earth after all these online lectures and and all these hours in front of the computer, finally being there and seeing the result of a day's work and was really uplifting, and I could really feel the power of architecture again and the power of the process how good it does to our soul to see the outcome of, of our energy again.
1: Could you tell us about what else you've got in the pipeline in terms of projects moving forward? Yes, I'm doing one project finally
2: in Germany. It's the a campus for sustainability from the Catholic Church. So it's a co-working space where certain NGOs, you know, dealing with social or ecological sustainability are coming together to share resources and ideas and have really a a good working atmosphere there. So, this is going to be in Ramped Earth in Draunstein in Bavaria. And attached to it is, is a boarding hostel that is a timber structure. And then I'm having also a campus for educational training, vocational training in, in Tatale in Ghana, northern part of Ghana, for Don Bosco, for the Salesians. And the interesting thing was um, we got a master plan from. Ghana, and we couldn't believe that this is really coming from Ghana because it it had this grid system. It was just one building lined up after the other, you know, straight, proper, all (laughs) following the grid system and had nothing African. It was like purely European grid. And that's a heritage, of course, from colonial times. And you see this grid system implemented everywhere. This is how a school building is ought to look like. And that's it. And this is such a long time following this this pattern. And and we we cut this master plan out of clay, clay cubes lined up all neat and following the pattern. And then we just transformed it in, in a very intuitive way. And of course, a lot of influence by the beautiful courtyards, the roundish huts, then again com- combined in a very rhythmic way with the square ones. And this is how we... We're trying to bring this cultural know-how and this diversity and this richness also into the master plan. And that project we are starting next week. And we just booked our flights to to Ghana for January. And I'm I'm longing to be back in the field and having my hands on the mud. That's exciting. What's the timeline for that project? Yeah, this will take a few years because it's really um, several classrooms and and segments that we need, of course, hostels also and accommodation for teachers and so on. And of course, it's also a matter of of crowdfunding or of of fundraising. But we are super happy to start with it. And because it's a pilot project, because also for the Catholic Church, I mean, they just have followed this pattern. And if you want to be sustainable, you put some solar panels on top of, of the roof. But there is much more in building sustainable than just having solar panels on top of the roof. And we also have included a school for sustainable construction techniques that, of course, teaches earthen architecture and various techniques there. And that was not in the beginning, you know, in the beginning, it was just planned to know how to, to, to build with concrete and bricks. And now this kind of architecture is also influencing the, the curriculum, of course, there, and and that's then the wonderful thing like in Bangladesh when we had the electrical training and then we had the solar panels and now the solar panel installations are part of the curriculum. So things are interwining in, in multiple disciplines in the end.
0: That's fantastic. That's wonderful. Are you
2: also working on a project in Spain? Yes, we are also doing an ecotourism project in Clastoronda where they have fantastic red soil, perfectly suitable for rammed earth. We did some tests there already, so we are also looking forward to that one with Martin Rauch for La Donaida. And then we are also having an, in Germany, again, an extension of an Ayurveda center, which is timber with earth and some willow weaving facade. So they, there's a couple of projects coming that I'm really looking forward. Luckily, all my projects, I, I, I luckily don't have any project that I don't like and just doing for the money. I'm really lucky in that sense that I can really embrace all the projects and... That is probably a lucky thing and a reason why we also don't do much competitions where you initiate a lot of projects on our own, like the fundraising and so on. But the time that you invest in, in doing competitions and then have to follow certain guidelines of clients, you could, that time you can also invest in initiating your own project that really uh, you can embrace with all your heart and, and follow the philosophy that you believe in.
0: Let's talk for just a moment about timescales. In the last decade, it seems that you, together with Martin Rao and others who are pioneering this agenda, the number of projects that you've built, you can count maybe on two hands. And you're teaching in the world's top architecture schools, but it's going to take time before your students are shaping the future of the profession. And these concepts that you've been espousing for years are gaining traction, circularity designed for disassembly. But how long will it take for earth and architecture to become better understood and more widely
2: adopted? I think we just saw now in the pandemic how fast change really can happen. And the good news is that earth is quite a patient material. You know, if you do mistake, you just add water <laughs> and some time <laughs> and you can fix it. And it's enough to have one, two trained persons, you know, and the rest can be untrained and can be trained during the, the projects. And that's what happened in Bangladesh. The first project, we had to train them. The last project, I, I hardly was on site. They did it completely on their own, although it was a really difficult structure. That was the third building that they so I think, you know, there could be a snowball effect and it could be definitely something that can speed up. And I think it will because because we have the climate on our side, you know, we have to. <laughs> and of course, the, I would say that we have about five years until carbon tax are implemented on materials and then it will change radically. It has to. Do you foresee a day when
0: Earth will be excavated from every building site and reused on
2: the same site yes every night i'm dreaming about it (laughs) (laughs) yes that's of course the aim that we use the material that is just below our feet and also because the land prices are getting more and more expensive you know there is so much more infrastructure that we dig in our soil and we just think of elon musk's boring company you know when he wants to do all the infrastructure the streets and whatever underneath you know underground how much material would would be ready for getting built into walls. That's what's happening with every subway that we're building and so on. There's a lot of land and mud and, and resources that we don't know what to do right now with those kind of mountains of clay and earth. And it's not the pure clay that is needed for the structures. It's this exactly this mix of materials of stones, of sand, of everything mixed up that you usually cannot use for anything. That's the perfect building material. Thank you very much, Anna, for this
0: really inspirational conversation. It's wonderful to hear what you're up to. Thank
2: Thank you. It was really a pleasure talking to you.
0: Our second guest today is Rachel Owens from the Architects Climate Action Network's Embodied Carbon Group. Rachel, it's great to have you on the podcast today. What are the work streams and campaigns of the Embodied Carbon Group?
3: So in the Embodied Carbon Group, we're really passionate about the need to understand, measure and reduce the whole life carbon emissions caused by buildings and infrastructure. Embodied carbon can actually account for as much as 70% of a new building's lifetime emissions. However, these emissions are completely unregulated. Our next initiative aims to plug this regulatory blind spot. It's a campaign to get embodied carbon introduced into the building regulations and planning policy. We want whole life carbon emissions to be measured, reported and reduced on every project so designers can make informed decisions to tackle the climate crisis. We're launching this event on the 3rd of February.
0: I totally agree with you that designers need to get to grips with whole life carbon, but it seems a long way from where mainstream practice is today. Are you familiar with any precedents from abroad where embodied carbon is regulated?
3: Yes, absolutely. So Finland will require whole life carbon assessments for all new buildings by 2025. The regulation they're about to introduce will have carbon budgets and require reductions in whole life carbon emissions from the moment the policy is introduced. France has also been trialing a new regulation called E plus C minus since 2016 on a voluntary basis. The regulation, which requires embodied carbon emissions reporting for buildings, will become law this year. In parallel, France are also making the use of bio-based materials for public-funded projects mandatory by 2022, and that will include their 2024 Olympic Park. The Netherlands has also required new office and residential buildings to report embodied carbon emissions since 2013 and introduced limits on whole-life carbon emissions in 2018. It's really important to note that in all the examples we've looked at, it takes time to create and implement policy and then introduce and lower whole life carbon caps. That's why it's really important that we start the process of regulating whole life carbon emissions now. How many people are actively
0: engaged in the embodied carbon work stream at ACAN and how can people get involved?
3: Yeah, so there are about 50 people involved in the wider embodied carbon group, 10 to 15 of which are actively involved in this latest campaign. We'd really love for anyone interested to get involved and welcome people of any level of experience or knowledge. Come along to a launch event on the 3rd of February. Check out ACAN's website, architectscan.org, where you can sign up to our mailing list or follow us on social media.
0: Thank you very much, Rachel. That concludes the sixth and final episode of the first series of Climate Champions. I would be grateful if you would rate this podcast on whichever platform you're listening on. This helps people find us and keeps the podcast going. If you're enjoying Climate Champions, please take time to answer a very short survey on our webpage, architectsjournal.co.uk podcasts. There are so many more topics I want to cover and people I want to talk to. I'm keen to get your input on what you'd most like to hear about in future series. Climate Champions is produced in association with ACAN, the Architects Climate Action Network. Special thanks to our excellent editors at Concept Culture and to our fabulous musicians, Felipe Tanaka, and Banda Balayo de Bayan, performing music by Edmilson D'Opifano. Until next time, stay safe. Please keep your distance and keep listening.